Great. Let's go ahead and get started. I want to welcome everyone um, to the LSE this evening. Uh, my name is Peter Trubowitz. Uh, I'm the head of the International Relations Department and the director of the uh, U.S. Center, uh, which is sponsoring, hosting tonight's lecture. Uh, I'm very um, pleased to be welcoming uh, tonight's speaker, uh, Lawrence Wright, to the LSE. In fact, it's a special uh, treat for um, for me as someone who taught for many years uh, in Austin, Texas, at the University of Texas. Um, I'm going to dispense with a lengthy uh, introduction. Suffice it to say that um, Lawrence Wright is the author of many things, histories, novels, movies, plays, and um, a column uh, in, the, um, in the New Yorker. And when he's not writing, uh, he plays keyboard for one of uh, Austin's uh, local blues rock bands called Hoodoo. Um, he's perhaps best known for um, his highly acclaimed book, The Looming Tower, uh, Al-Qaeda and the Road to 9-11, which was on the New York Times bestseller list for a couple of months um, and subsequently translated into over um, uh, two dozen languages. And then along the way, it racked up multiple awards and prizes, um, including um, the Lionel Gelber Award for um, nonfiction, the LA Times Award for history, the Anthony Lucas Book Prize, the New York Public Library's Helen Bernstein Award for Excellence in Journalism, and last but hardly least, the Pulitzer Prize for General Nonfiction. Not too shabby. So, um, well, he's back with a new book, uh, his 11th by my count, uh, entitled God Save Texas, A Journey into the Soul of the Lone Star State. Um, I had a chance to read parts of it um, over the weekend, and as someone who lived in Austin for uh, over 20 years, um, I share Lawrence's conflicted relationship with the state of Texas. Austin's a wonderful city with a world-class university in a state whose motto is, don't mess with Texas, and whose politics are, how should I put it, sometimes maddening. Um, so tonight's lecture is, or talk, is about, I think, about both of these Texases, but also about what's going on in Texas, what the trends and the developments in Texas mean for kind of American politics more generally uh, in, in, the, uh, in the era of Trump. Um, before I turn it over, just a few public service announcements. Uh, the first is that um, if you haven't put your phone on silent, please do, um, because this event is being recorded, and so it's a real drag when the phones go off during the recording. Uh, if you're on Twitter tonight, what is it? It's LSE Texas uh, is the suggested hashtag. And finally, copies of uh, Lawrence's book will be um, available for purchase outside the theater. I think it's immediately outside this door uh, right after um, we conclude, and uh, Lawrence will be around to uh, sign copies. So with that, please join me in giving Lawrence a big LSE welcome. Well, thank you. Um, I've... 
I've been here before. My my son worked here, and uh, his wife uh, studied here. So we visited them uh, years ago and came to LSE and very impressed by this institution. Um, how many of you have ever been to Texas? Oh, wow. Why? <laughs> I... It's, it's not actually Dawson now is uh, the number two tourist destination in America after Las Vegas, which is a little surprising to me. Um, Austin has the reputation of being cool, and it had the reputation long before it was cool. I don't know how they got that. Uh, the public relations for the city is unbelievable, uh, but it is a cool place now. Uh, does anybody here speak Norwegian? Okay, I might be able to get away with this. Det Varhelt, Texas. Uh, I'm told by my Norwegian friends, it means it was totally bonkers. Everybody, he says it is said with a touch of admiration. Everybody has an opinion about Texas. It's an amazing brand. And uh, I, I remember uh, when I was a young man, um, and I was teaching at the American University in Cairo. Uh, and I used to go horseback riding out by the pyramids. Uh, there was a stable just below the Sphinx. And I'm a city boy. I'm no cowboy. But um, they found out that I was from Texas. And they started calling me Texas. And uh, one day I went out to the stables and they said, Oh, Texas, we've got a horse for you. And two guys bring out this stallion pawing the air, his nostrils flaring. It was terrifying. Uh, but being Texas, I had to get on the horse, and it took me halfway to Libya. But uh, I, I really felt I was astride the Texas myth. And I think every Texan, and especially every Texas man, has felt the distance between the ideal and the reality. I certainly felt it that day. Um, the what, a few things you should know about Texas. Um, it's growing like crazy. Of course, I look out at London at all the cranes you have out there. Uh, a, a lot of Texas cities look like that. Uh, Texas is growing faster than any other state. There are 29 million Texans right now. It's projected to double by the year 2050, at which time it will be about the size of California and New York combined, number one and number three states. Uh, Ten percent of all the school children in America right now are already Texans. You know, economically, uh, Texas last quarter of 2017 grew at 5.2 percent. Uh, the only other state that even reached 4% was Idaho, and there must have been a run on potatoes or something. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's just it, economically and demographically, it is dwarfing the rest of America, and it is becoming the future of America. So there's a reason to pay attention to what happens in Texas, because what happens in Texas tends to migrate uh, for good or ill into national politics, and what happens in America, as you know, splashes up on your shores. Um, now, how did Texas get to be so important? There's one word for that answer, and it is oil. In 
And that happened for some of them. Some of these people became really, really rich. Uh, Suddenly, once again, there was a tremendous gusher, and Dad Joyner was right. It was the biggest oil field ever discovered. Uh, within a year and a half, there were 1,000 oil wells in, in this neighborhood in one town called Kilgore. There were um, 43, in one city block, 43 derricks. You could walk through the town without ever touching the ground. And in the latest, I know that this touches a subject that uh, is upsetting to a lot of people in England, um, was fracking. Uh, in the 1990s, there was talk about uh, oil being at peak oil and that we had recovered all the, the, the most recoverable oil and that from now on we would be on a downslope of uh, you know, increasing cost of petroleum. And, uh, and of energy. And uh, George Mitchell, probably the greatest wildcatter in Texas history, had uh, a lease uh, in North Texas. And he knew there was gas and, and oil there, but it was in what's in shale, which is called tight rock, and limestone and sandstone being a lot easier for petroleum molecules to flow through. And everybody knew there was gas there, and they tried different ways of getting it. Dynamite, um, bazookas, machine guns. Uh, in 1967, the Atomic Energy Commission uh, exploded a 26-kiloton nuclear bomb. Uh, and then that was the first of 30 nuclear explosions they, they set off to try to free the gas that was there. And it did work. The only problem was that the gas was radioactive. Um, but once again, George Mitchell drilled 250, he fracked 250 wells before he made a profit. And that began the revolution. Uh, Texas now is a leading uh, fracker in the country. And Texas and the United States now has more production than Saudi Arabia and Russia. It's an extraordinary turnaround. But like it or not, the ingenuity of these uh, oil men has changed the world. And once again, of course, prices went down, busted in 2014, and now perhaps because of geopolitics, you see the price of oil climbing back up again. But it's oil that made Texas, Texas. Now, if you look at the energy business all along, it's uh, just, you know, in Texas, 18% of our energy comes from wind. It's the largest uh, wind producer in the entire United States, so it's not all about fracking. Now, Texas is far more diverse uh, in its economy now. It, is, it exports more than California and New York combined. Yes, much of that is petroleum, but it also it, it outstrips California in the export of technology, um, which is surprising, right? A lot of companies are moving to Texas, I think mainly because of the taxes. But, uh, but you know, there's a tremendous amount of relocation that's going on. Now, and where are they coming from? They're coming from California. Now, when I was your age, Texas was blue uh, and California was red. Uh, 
Texas produced Lyndon Johnson and the Great Society, and California produced Ronald Reagan and the Modern Conservative Revolution. These two states are, I did a book once about twins, uh, and there's a kind of identical twin called a mirror image twin. The, uh, it, they're the last twins to separate, uh, and one twin will be left-handed and the other will be right-handed. One will have a mole on this cheek and the other one on this cheek. You know, they are mirror image. They are genetically identical, but biologically different. They are mirror images. California and Texas are a little like that. Uh, you know, we're in a relationship uh, you know, we're both you know, the top ten cities in America, three in, in uh, California, three in Texas. The 11th largest city in America is Austin, where I live. We have very similar demographics. We're both majority-minority states, which is the future of America. And yet our political and economic models couldn't be more different, you know, California hasn't got a single elected Republican. Texas hasn't elected a Democrat statewide for more than 20 years. So we have this relationship. We revolve around each other, and the whole body politic of America is really, in some ways, a dialectic between Texas and California, and each of them vying for the future. Now, it's my argument that the future is Texas simply because of the growth. Uh, in America, you probably know that we elect our presidents through electoral votes, and each state has a number of electors depending on its population. Uh, California has the most. It has 55 elector, electoral votes, uh, but it hasn't added any since 2003. New York, the third largest state, has been losing population and electoral votes almost since the Truman administration. Texas gained is 38 electoral votes now. Uh, it will gain four more. It will gain even more in the next one. Uh, every, every 10 years we have a census. Every 10 years Texas's congressional delegation and its electoral votes increase. And that's the demography. That's what's going to affect the future of America. Now, I have reservations about this progress, and I'm a Texan, and I love the state. There are a lot of things I really cherish about the state, but I don't think that we're doing a very good job of preparing uh, for the future. We have, we are next to the bottom in how much we spend on for students, um, you know, 49th out of 50 states. And, um, and the result of that is our students are badly educated. Uh, and as I said, 10% of all the students in America are Texans. So we have not uh, lived up to that responsibility. I wonder why that's true. Um, you know... There was even an attempt in the last legislative session to take money out of the almost smothered public education budget and award it to private schools. Um, to me, that's just a, a reflection of racism. I think there's a fear of, elect, of, of it educating our black and brown students in Texas, and that's, I think, really shameful. We're also not building the infrastructure for the state that we're going to become. If we're doubling by 2050, 
then um, we should we should be actively building for that future. But we're not. We can barely keep up with the population inflow that we have. So this is my message. Um, you know, Texas is the future. Uh, the decisions that we're making there are the decisions about what kind of country America will become and what America will become will affect much of the world. There's a lot to be loved about Texas. Uh, but I, I do fear that we're, we, we haven't shouldered the responsibility of becoming the leading state that we should be in order to make country the country, the America, that we'd like for it to be. So that's my talk. And if you have questions, I'm sure Peter and I can try to handle them. Thank you. Great. Well, thanks, um, Lawrence. That's, uh, that's great. That gets us started. Um, I, you know what I'll do is I'll, I'll open it up to, um, to, to questions. I suppose maybe I'll, I'll ask the, the first question. Um, but I, I really want to ask you um, about um, Beto O'Rourke. Okay. Um, and whether or not um, a Democrat is actually going to finally win uh, a statewide seat. Um, the Senate seat. So there's a challenge to Ted Cruz uh, in the Senate race. Um, and this guy's awfully close. I think the po- most recent poll I looked at, he was three percentage points behind. Mm-hmm. And he's ahead of Cruz in terms of the money raised. And significantly, none of it's PAC money. Right. It's all small donations, kind of. Bernie Sanders style, I yeah. suppose. And, um, I mean, there's a larger question in this about what's going on in Texas politics. Maybe I'll ask after, but just, I mean, is, is this just, a, just another one of those teases where, I mean, the Democrats have not won seats in that, you know, kind of statewide seats for a very long time there. And uh, if you think about just like the governorship, you have to go back. You got to go back to Ann Richards. Yeah, um, that's right. So the defeat of Ann Richards marked the end of the Democratic Party as a force yeah. in Texas. I met Beto um, a couple of weeks ago in a at a Fox News channel in Dallas, and um, seven o'clock in the morning we met in the green room, and um, he, you know, first of all, Beto, he was in a punk rock band. Uh, he uh, He's a congressman from El Paso. We've never elected anybody from El Paso to statewide office. Why we have that grudge against El Paso, I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, I was watching as, as the anchor uh, was interviewing uh, Beto. And this is, how it, this is how it went. It starts off, wow, you're really handsome. You're tall, <laughs> and you're charismatic, and Beto hadn't said a word, and this was Fox, right? Uh, so I thought, huh, maybe there is something here that uh, he reminds me a little of Jimmy Stewart. He's a very yeah. appealing. We haven't had a candidate like that in a long time. Uh, he's running as a Democrat, and the Democratic Party is a totally wounded animal, just like the Republican Party is in California. So they give him no support. Um, what's going for him is that he speaks Spanish, although he's not Hispanic. 
Ted Cruz, who is Hispanic, doesn't speak Spanish, um, and is Canadian, you know, which a, a factor that I, I never thought has been fully accounted for in Texas. Um, but if Beto wins, um, it will he'll be a giant slayer. He'd be an immediate prospect for a vice presidential ticket. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's uh, but. Here's the deal. Uh, 29 million Texans, 19 million of them registered to vote before the presidential election. Only 9 million of them actually voted. And, uh, and so let's take that apart for a moment. They went to the trouble to register. Think about that. They were standing on the lip of actually casting votes. But then, and it's easy to vote in Texas. Uh, you know, it's all the talk about voting ID. You can vote for two weeks. Mm-hmm. You can mail your ballot in. It's not like New York where you have to one day and if it's raining or you got a meeting, you know, uh, it's, we make it very easy to vote. But not, 9 million people voted and 10 million people did not. So, uh, okay. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were the two most unpopular presidential candidates in American history. So there was that. Mm -hmm. Uh, There wasn't a compelling reason to go out and go to the polls or mail in your ballot. Uh, The other thing is, who doesn't vote in Texas? You know, it's often laid onto the Hispanics. Mm -hmm. And it's true that Hispanics, especially in South Texas, have been slow to vote. But if you look at who really doesn't vote, it's the poor, it's the poorly educated, and the young. And there are a lot of Hispanics that fill those categories. So what separates Texas from becoming blue or purple Mm -hmm. is appealing candidates. There has never been a candidate who spoke to that disenfranchised, disillusioned, predominantly Hispanic uh, minority in Texas. And if there were, I think you'd find uh, that there'd be a revolution in in American politics because if you have Texas turning blue, there's just no calculus in which a Republican candidate could take the White House. None. Right. The thing is, you just have a very large um, party of non-voters. They're, but they're not disinterested. Mm. They they registered. That always that gets that me. I think question. that you know, yeah. 19 million registered voters out of 29 million people yeah. is not unrespectable. Yeah. And um, and uh, you know, there's it's, there's a day coming. I think when right. people will be motivated. But it will take candidates like Beto and others yeah. to motivate people to get out and vote. And we just haven't had that in Texas. Well, that's hopeful because it puts a lot of weight on agencies. So you get like some attractive leaders, and I don't mean attractive in the sense of the way Fox News described them, but somebody with a message that resonates there. Yeah. Um, um, so, well, look, let's open it up. Um, I've got a question way in the back. I'll take you all the way in the back up there. We'll start in the back. <clears throat> yes, thank you. It was very interesting. Um, given that Texas is so heavily based in oil and gas, isn't that going to be a major headwind in the, over the next 20 years as we phase out? Oil and gas as a fuel? Well, uh, I, I, did you all hear the question well enough? Uh, 
oil and gas, you know, right now I see that as, you know, gas especially as a bridge uh, to alternative fuels. And um, Texas is in the energy business. And as I said, 18 percent of our energy in Texas is already out of wind. In some cities like Dallas, you can choose where your energy comes from. And if you choose alternative energy, uh, your energy at night is free. It's hard to beat free, right? But when the wind blows more at night, and they have to unload the power. So if you happen to choose wind power as your source of energy, you can heat your swimming pool or you know shoot off rockets, whatever you want to do, absolutely free. <laughs> and uh, that's, I think, uh, and the other thing to know about Texas is, in terms of energy, there are three grids, electrical grids in America. There's the east, the west, and Texas. We have our own grid. And uh, so it, it's largely to keep the Fed's hands off of our energy, you know. And uh, But that energy flows into the cities. And, uh, you know, there's a tremendous need, uh, given the growth of Texas, to keep that energy uh, our, for ourselves to keep the you know keep powering the growth in the state, um, so I'm I'm optimistic that we'll make that switch into alternative energy forms. Not just in you see it's an odd sight if you drive out in West Texas. There are mesas, and they're just covered like regiments of of of, of windmills. And then below that, they're pumping jacks for oil wells. And, and then all around, you see these, these massive power lines. Uh, it's, uh, it's a site you just don't see anywhere else. And it's so in that part of Texas, it's all about energy, wherever it comes from. How about the woman right back here in the striped shirt? Thanks. Can you say something? a bit more about demographics and economics. Demographics in terms of is it a young population, elderly? Uh, what sort of proportion are from Mexico? Um, what's the sort of internal sort of growth as opposed to people coming from other states? And in economic terms, um, what's the income like? Are the jobs that um, pay decent wages? Are the unions recognized? Uh, just a bit more feel of the state. Sure. Um. Texas, uh, of course, all over America right now, the unemployment rate is, you know, very low. But in Texas, you know, it's practically, there's, like in Austin, it's in the twos. Essentially, anybody who wants to work is working now. And, uh, in fact, there's, there's a little bit of fear that, for instance, Amazon might select Austin as being its second headquarters. Where are we going to... We had to find 50,000 new people uh, to move into town. We're already growing so quickly. A lot of the growth is in tech. Um, the, so, yes, you know, the, Texas has always had the McDonald's service level uh, and a lot of that. But middle class and upper class jobs, a lot of that is growing. And... The population has been growing mainly uh, minorities. Most of the growth is in minorities. But there are a lot of young people. And uh, Dallas and Houston, I think, are two of the youngest cities in America. And, of course, Austin is even younger, given that so much of it is student 
uh, population. Um, and that's part of the appeal of the state. Um, a lot of tech industries come because there are universities, and the universities get more students because there are tech industries. Uh, Houston is probably the, is given the credit as being the most diverse city in America. There's not a single um, there's not a single ethnic group that is a majority. Uh, it has uh, Texas in general has more political refugees than any other state. And Houston has more than any other city in America. It's always been very generous about political refugees. Uh, but the diversity in Houston is just really intriguing, and they celebrate it. I'm, I'm very impressed with the way that Houston uh, we have, it has its second black mayor, and in between those two black mayors was America's first lesbian, uh, openly declared lesbian mayor. Uh, and it's confounding to a, a lot of the images that one has of Texas. Uh, but Houston at least sees diversity as a source of real strength and not uh, a burden. Statewide politics is totally counter to that. Uh, there's a great fear of immigration. Um, there was a sanctuary cities bill passed in the previous legislature that I covered and talk about in my book. Uh, and uh, part of that uh, legislation was a show me your papers provision, which means if I stop you, if I'm a cop and I stop you for a traffic violation and you look to me like a Hispanic, I might say, show me proof of your citizenship. Well, that stigmatizes 40% of the population. Uh, and I think that that, you know, I, I think that's unconscionable. But let me s divert for a moment to the question of immigration um, and the wall and so on that, you know, that Trump is avid to build. I've written a lot about terrorism. Um, and I do believe that we have to have some control over the inflow of through our borders. Uh, now, it's not the case that we've had terrorists coming over the southern border. The only time we ever had a, a real terrorist come across the American border was Ahmed Rassam in 1999 who came from Montreal um, and he was going to blow up the LA, LA airport um, so there's not it's, it's not tr the case that terrorists are streaming across our southern border but tens of thousands of people a month are coming across without documentation and that's uh, that's not wise it's not good policy. We have a terrible immigration policy. And the people that come across usually come across for work. And we need the labor. Uh, all the border states are suffering right now because there aren't as many uh, undocumented immigrants coming across. But they need to be able to come across and go back and forth with dignity and have legal recourse and not be in hiding all the time. But that's the situation we have right now. I think it's fine to put up a wall in certain urban areas. And I think in other places we should police with drones and sensors and so on like that. I do think it's a good idea to keep control of the borders, but we also have to acknowledge our desperate need for the immigrants that we've been depending upon and been so hypocritical about until now. What about guns? A lot of people associate 
Texas with guns. Um, and you write about it in the book, yeah. too. And you, you talk about what happened at the University of Texas. I mean, it's a very kind of gripping part of the, the, the story. And, um, and it actually kind of captures, in a way, the way that you tell it. Um, it, it frames the debate in the United States about whether we would be, Americans would be safer if everybody had a gun. Right. Right. It's like the current debate in Washington and the United States or whether it would be better off if it was regulated. And, and so some thoughts about that? Texas is a leader. You know, it's not. Uh, Texas <laughs> seems to be the leader. But, you know, Texas gun laws were more restrictive than a lot of other places um, like Vermont, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders was very quiet on the gun issue mm. when he was running for president because in Vermont they have what's called constitutional carry. Right. In other words, you could all go out and get yourself a gun. You don't have to ask anybody's permission. And uh, and you can walk pretty much anywhere with it. Uh, so Texas uh, liberalized its, uh, to use the word, contort a word, uh, its gun laws uh, to be more consonant with some of the other states. Um I have a concealed weapons license, and uh, the reason I have one uh, is that I do a lot of reporting at the Capitol. Mm. And um, uh, if you have a concealed weapons license, you don't have to go through the scanner. You just hold up your concealed weapons license, and you're the most likely person to be carrying a gun, right? But you just walk right through. You know, you know, Come on in. You know? uh, and, and, you know, there are, uh, there are not a lot of armed reporters, but there are a lot of armed legislators and lobbyists. That, but you never see the guns. The... Um, but Texas has an unfortunate history with guns. Um, you know, I was in Dallas when Kennedy was killed, and it was a it was a horrible, horrible time. And, it, and the city was stigmatized, uh, taken down in a way that no other American city ever had been. And uh, then, uh, just a few years later, uh, Charles Whitman was a right. killer in the UT Tower. This is the first time the school shooting thing happened. Uh, he climbed up to the top of the UT Tower, which at that time commanded view of the entire city. And uh, uh, he began pulling the trigger. And the first person he shot was one of my classmates from high school, Claire James, who was nine months pregnant, and he killed her infant. And... I don't know how many people he killed that day. You know, there were, I think there were 14 that died, but 20-something that were shot. Uh, and, uh, and that meme of, you know, school shootings really began there. Uh, and it's continued. You know, I mean, every city in America has had a mass shooting. And um, the most recent mass shooting was in a place, a little church called Sunderland Springs. And, you know, it was... I don't know, lots of people were killed. And um, uh, so what happened? Uh, a guy who was an NRA uh, uh, instructor shot the, shot the killer. Uh, this is taken as a lesson uh, that, you know, having guns is a good thing. Um, probably the most influential shooting that took place in Texas was in 
the early 90s in Luby's in uh, Killeen, Texas. And uh, there was a a guy had just come from the movie. Um, What was the name of that movie? It was Fisher King. How many of you have seen the Fisher King? Do you know that that movie? uh, And uh, uh, Robin Williams plays this guy whose girlfriend is killed by... Uh, you know, some crazy killer who walks into a restaurant. It's a movie about the damage that violence does. This guy, the killer, still had his ticket stub when he drove his pickup through the plate glass windows of this cafeteria, and it was full of people eating lunch. And and at first they thought that maybe this guy had a heart attack, you know, or something. So people got up to try to help him, and he pulled out his gun and he started shooting people. And one woman was there, uh, and her she was having lunch with her parents, and she had a gun, but it, she had left it in the car because she was a chiropractor, and at that time you couldn't carry a concealed weapon, and she was afraid that if a cop found her with a gun in her purse that she would lose her license. So she, the gun that she would have used to kill the killer was in the, in the pickup. And she tried to get her mother and her father rushed the killer and was shot down. And then she told her mother, let's make a run for it. And she made a run for it, but her mother went to comfort her, mm. her husband. That woman got elected to the state legislature, and she passed the gun law that George Bush signed mm. um, and uh, allowing people to carry weapons, concealed weapons. Uh, I had a personal experience with this once when I was at the George Bush Library in um, in Dallas. And at the time, the legislature was considering campus carry. Right. Uh, you can imagine if you guys were allowed to walk around with guns. Uh, well, if you want to do that, come to Texas. University uh, of Texas. You but can do, uh, yeah. uh, uh, on the SMU campus in Dallas uh, is a George Bush it was a new presidential library, and I was there with uh, my friend Steve Harrigan and our wives and and Steve's daughter, and we were in a marble atrium uh, waiting to go into the exhibit, and suddenly somebody yelled, active shooter. You know what you do when that happens? You fall to the ground. It's stupid. You should scatter to the wind, you know, but everybody just hit the deck. The guy in front of me, this old man, I could, his head bounced on the marble floor. And, um, and you know, my wife was between two evangelical Christians who were praying into her ear. And, uh, it, it, and I thought, wait a minute, I'm an investigative reporter. <laughs> what are you doing? Get up. You know, so I go. Uh, and by now, there are security cops with automatic weapons, which, you know, where did they, those come from? And, uh, and there's some guy with an unholstered pistol creeping around. I said, what's going on? Oh, sir, you know, I can't tell you. And, and finally I find out. I had seen this black kid come in and uh, uh, just a few minutes before. And it turned out that he had been outside playing 
with a toy gun. Mm. They had just been to the Texas Ranger Museum, and they bought a toy gun. And like all toy guns uh, sold nowadays, they had a little orange tip on it that tells you, this is a toy. And uh, anyway, he had to go pee. So he gave his toy gun to his father, who was sitting on a park bench smoking. Suddenly, it's a black man with a gun. And they, the cops put him on the ground. They handcuffed him and interrogated him for two hours. Uh, now, I tell you this story, I'm ashamed of it, but at the same time, the, the Texans are just as afraid of guns as everybody else. It's scary, scary to see people walking around with guns, even in Dallas and uh, even on the campus of the George Bush Library, the man that signed the bill that allowed people to do that. Uh, so, you know, it, I, you rarely see people holding guns in Texas. Uh, and but you know the ability to do that is is always present. Right up here, and the guy in the green, second row, you. That's you. That's you. Yeah. Oh, you're waiting for the mic. Ah. There we go. All right. <clears throat> uh, um, do you think there's any prospect of of um, shall we say a, a dem- diminution of tribalism? I say that because um, there appears to be. Uh, on the right of center conservatives who are sensible and rational people and who who are definitely not Trumpian. I'm thinking of people like George Will and David Brooke and Bill Crystal, who are as fed up with what the antics right. that are happening. And yet um, there seems to be a, a, a real reluctance, if if not a denial on on the people on the left of center center to, to form any kind of bridge or or um, alliance with them. Yeah. So, it, and and that just simply entrenches this tribalism. So I'm I'm wondering within Texas if there's any scope for for uh, fierce independence politically. Well, that's a really interesting question, and I've I've thought a lot about it too because tribalism is 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 you know murdering American politics right now, and um, it's it's been a very very destructive force. Uh, I'll tell you my experience. Um, during the primaries, uh, I was I went to a speech by Carl Rove, who lives in Austin and um, and has done so much to redden Texas and the rest of the country. Um, and I was sitting at a table with all Republicans, and uh, a woman, a friend of mine who had been a, a justice, a Republican. We in Texas we elect our judges, and uh, she had been on the Texas Supreme Court, and uh, she said, "Y'all." If Trump gets the nomination, who are you going to vote for? And every Republican at that table was going to vote for Hillary Clinton. Did they? I don't think so. Uh, the you know te- Trump only carried Texas by nine points, much below what Mitch, Mitt Romney had done in the previous election. It was about the same as Ohio. Um, but all those people that I knew at that table are now Trump supporters. So he's run away with their party, uh, and that um, that I would characterize it as that same conservative center uh, that used to exist in the Democratic Party and long existed in the Republican Party uh, has been fractured. And uh, can any are there bridge figures in, that can span that. I, the only example that I can give you right now uh, 
is Willie Nelson. <laughs> Willie, every Texan loves Willie. Uh, and just consider, he moved back to Texas. He grew up in a little Texas town. Comes back to Texas in the middle 70s, grows his hair long, and puts them in pigtails. Now, you don't see a lot of men in Texas in pigtails. It's a transgressive kind of cross-dressing thing. And, and he goes down. He, his clothes are all made of hemp. Uh, he goes down to the Capitol and lobbies for marijuana legalization. And they love him. They love him. Ted Cruz loves him. Uh, so I, I, in some ways, I think you know, there's something about the culture of the state that coheres despite the, the incredible divisions that have... Is, I've never seen America so, so shattered politically as it is now and with so little uh, in the way of redemptive, unifying figures. Uh, and as you point out, you know, the, the, the parties themselves uh, don't seem to be producing that kind of unity. So you have to look elsewhere. And, um, you know, of course, Willie's a very old man, and he's not going to run for office, nor should he. But uh, uh, I think that there is some, some solace to be taken in the unity that we feel in our culture. Gentleman in the white right there, and then I'll come to you. Hi. Um, I want to ask you about the American media. Um, because you work at The New Yorker, which is obviously a celebrated cosmopolitan uh, magazine publication. Um, but as in, after the election, we saw a lot of kind of self-flagellation on the part of all these mainstream publications, New York Times, Washington Post, The Atlantic, New Yorker, about how... You know, they've lost touch with middle America, with the real America. Could you speak to that as a native Texan? Do you think that your colleagues at the New Yorker are, have lost touch? Well, you... Yeah. To be honest, I was, just, this. Okay, <laughs> I was just as surprised as any, anybody that Trump won. I was totally dumbfounded. I, I, you know, he made so many what seemed to be mortal gaffes, and I, I couldn't imagine that he was going to win. So, yeah, I was out of touch, uh, even though I had, you know, relatives and even guys in my band who voted for Trump. I wasn't a, uh, unaware that, you know, that Trump had a constituency. I just didn't think it could survive his, you know, comical uh, campaign. And um, so I was, I was as out of touch as any other person in the media, I suppose, um, and yet I live really in the heart of Texas. And I, you know, I, I, I don't think, I think I have a pretty good handle on who lives there. Um, Trump is a reaction. Uh, there's always been in American politics a, a feeling of paranoia, of, 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 of being, and I grew up feeling this, you know, as a young man in Dallas, the Eastern Establishment, as we used to call it, we hated Washington. Uh, you know, the whole idea that you know this, this was the elite, and they were looking down on us. And uh, so there was a tremendous amount of resentment. And that theme of resentment is something that's characterized American politics almost from the beginning, and it never seems to ebb. Uh, and I think you know, if you look at the people that voted for Trump. 
they're the people that feel marginalized. They're the, you know, the unemployed white men. Uh, they're the evangelical voters. You know, they're, uh, you know, they're some, they're some, uh, you know, the uh, pro, uh, the anti, the anti-abortion element. Uh, the 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 people who hate uh, America's involvement in international organizations, you know, all of these are people that feel marginalized in American politics, and and they found their candidate. They found the candidate who gave voice to their feelings, um, and and they are the same people that hate the press. Um, it's it's a dismaying period to be a reporter these days when, um, you know, with the phrase uh, fake news uh, being so predominant. There is a lot of fake news, but it's not the news that we're reporting in the New Yorker or the New York Times. You know, uh, you know the journalism profession has been pilloried uh, for a long, long time, and, uh, and yet it's a noble profession. And, it, it, you know, people that go out and try to find out what's really happening and and bring back the news. Uh, and then these phony reports come out and it totally wash away the truth. Uh, it's If you see it happening, it's stunning. You know, Alex Jones, for instance, lives in Austin. And there was a... Uh, and together with Russian bots... Uh, he manufactured or promoted a story about this, what was called Operation Jade Helm. It was a military operation, one of many that we have in the United States and often happen in, in Texas where we have so many military bases. It was an operation uh, you know, for military preparedness. It took place over several states. And Alex Jones promoted the idea that this was a preparation for a military coup that was going to keep Barack Obama in office and that they were going to use Target department stores as concentration camps and Bluebell ice cream trucks were going to be mobile morgues. And so the Army tries to explain this is just an exercise. You know, we do this all the time. This is, we're your Army. And uh, if you, you can go back on video and you can see uh, the spokesman trying to talk to these town halls where people are yelling at him and laughing at him and saying, you know, you're, you're lying to us. There was no way that he could persuade them that this was just a, a, this was a, a manufactured story that was promoted by Russian bots and that persuaded people to come out and try. And the governor called out the National Guard to monitor the situation. It was. And then what happened? Well, the operation took place. And you know what? Barack Obama didn't stay in office. There was no military coup. There was no follow up to it. It was never a story. It was a lie. It was just a cons- it was fake news, but it was it preoccupied the minds of so many Texans, and uh, and it's you know Abraham Lincoln said that uh, you know uh, that the the that a lie can go halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to get his pants on, and uh, and it, the evidence of that was really apparent to me during that. But it's not just that incident; it happens all the time. Um, 
So this gentleman up here, and then we'll come back there, okay? Um, I just wanted to ask you about um, America's trust in institutions and say, for example, something like the Justice Department at the moment and Trump, so, you know, sort of the FBI and Comey being politicised now and then the Mueller investigation. Just do you think that there is a genuine divide among American, average American citizens that they don't trust law enforcement and, and they don't really trust the Justice Department? Or is this just a, a kind of cleansing that needs to happen in order to restore trust? What are the things that would restore that trust? I don't think it's a cleansing. I think it's a soiling. Uh, you know, it's it's upsetting to me to see, for instance, our intelligence agencies being attacked by the president. Uh, they're his intelligence agencies. They report to him. He runs them. It's his, you know. But he's saying, you know, that they are, you know, they are undermining uh, his administration and they're working against American interests. This is at a time uh, when, you know... You know, I wrote a lot about the intelligence world before 9-11 and how dysfunctional it was and how divided. Well, the intelligence agencies now are very much more united, but so is al-Qaeda. And, you know, al-Qaeda on 9-11 was about 400 people, and now it's thousands and thousands. There are 18 different chapters in different countries around the world, and that's not to mention the progeny like ISIS, like Boko Haram, you know, the, the, the jihadist uh, mentality is spread across the globe and the intentions remain the same and the capability is increased. And, and this is a time to attack our intelligence agencies. Uh, it, it places us in peril. It's, 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 it's dangerous uh, for the president to attack our you know, our, our law institutions and our, and our intelligence agencies, especially at a time when we are facing such a, a dire threat. Uh, Europe is in greater danger. But imagine if, if suddenly the population of France or Germany or England turned against its uh, institutions in the same manner. Uh, think how much more jeopardy you would be placed in if that were true. Well, that's the way I view it in America right now. Gentleman in the block there. And I'll come over here next. And then down here. Hi. Um, do you think there's a danger in the politics of saying this is not possible, this can't be done, globalization, mass migration is inevitable, and as you said, uh, diversity, undoubtedly a good thing. What is the future of the Democratic, Democratic Party if it can't address these concerns as it failed to do in the 2016 election? The Democratic Party is really um, inadequate to the task. We don't, as, as a country, we have two broken parties. Uh, Trump has essentially run off with the Republican Party. And, you know, the, it's, it's embarrassing, really, to watch the toadying of, you know, Republican leaders to the president that they all despise. Uh, the Democrats have not been able to produce candidates or even policies that have resonated with the American people. So we're at, a, we're at a dismal crossroads. And there's no third party that would answer your point about that kind of median, the middle American conservative uh, 
that just doesn't exist. So, you know, I don't, I don't know what's going to evolve. Things are so fluid right now that some change is going to come about. But I am not able, I'm not the guy that can tell you how it's going to change and where it's going to go. But I can agree with your analysis that the Democrats haven't done any better a job than the Republicans. Woman back there, and then I'll come up here. Thank you. Uh, My question is about the energy future of the United States, and I found some interesting but paradoxical clues in your speech. First, oil is taxes in domain. What makes taxes taxes? And... Texas is a pro-democratic state, but we know that the Democratic Party loves renewable energy, and Trump loves oil, gas, and fossil fuels. So what is the attitude of Texas governors and city mayors towards energy? And the second question is about well, relationship. Well, stop with that one so I, can, I, don't, I, I won't remember this is the first <laughs> question if I don't get a chance to answer it. Okay. Uh, the answer about our governor is, you know, well, all Texas political leaders are enslaved to the oil and gas industry. Uh, That's where much of their money comes from. On the other hand, uh, I will give, for instance, Rick Perry, uh, who's now the head of the Energy Department, uh, credit for uh, promoting wind wind energy in Texas. Um, And, uh, you know, it's because of his efforts that, you know, we have diversified some of our energy sources. so, yes, you know, Texas has long been enslaved to the oil and gas industry. But remember, it's better to think of them now as energy industries and not just oil and gas. And what was your second question? Okay. Second, so first question is about, more about relationship between, between the subnational level and the, the national federal level. My second question is more about the relationship between Texas and California. You mentioned that it's very interesting that the two states are twins with many similarities. California is a pioneer in, in promoting alternative energy, and you mentioned that there is a relocation of companies from California to Texas. So which industries, and do they cause any rivalries between the two, the twins? Yes. Texas and California are like... Um Strands of DNA, you know, they they are in a relationship, and they revolve around each other, but they never touch. But they're in a constant relationship, and um, and in Texas, it's true in California too. Um, but Texas politicians, especially the governor, is constantly warning of the dangers of Californication, and. Uh, even, even the drummer in my band has a bumper sticker on his drum kit that says, Stop Californication of Texas Music. <laughs> what does that mean? I don't have any idea what he means by that. But, uh, you know, California is seen as the great threat to America uh, because it is liberal, it has high taxes, it has high regulations. And Texas is the extreme opposite, you know, has, you know, prejudice against any kind of government at all. There's very low regulation um, and low tax. Um, Despite all that, as I said, you know, we're very similar in our demography 
And we're also similar in some of our outcomes. For instance, we both do a very poor job of educating our students, California as well. Uh, the number of people that, the, the percentage of people with high school education, uh, number 49 is Texas, number 50 is California. Uh, Texas has very open gun laws. California has very conservative gun laws, very restrictive. And yet the number of people murdered by gun is about the same in both states. So it's confounding. You want to think that politics makes a difference, and sometimes it doesn't. You know, there are cultures that are hard to bend in one direction or another. But the, the body politic of America revolves around the dynamic of these two states, California and Texas. Californians like to think that the future is California. But it's, it's, it's struggling with the fact that it's not growing and that there's been so many defections often to Texas and often because of the low taxes. And the low taxes are a reflection of the fact that we're defaulting on educating our kids. So, you know, it's, there's a, the good part of having a very conservative, low-tax state is that people stream in. Yeah. Businesses flock there. Jobs are created. This is wonderful. You know, this is wonderful. It's nothing more important than having jobs for people. Better than welfare, better than anything. But it's not better than educating your kids because that's the future of the state. And so we have to be a good enough government to actually raise the money to educate our children. Just a, a kind of follow-on before I turn to the next question. So when did New York get off the hook in Texas? I mean, there was a time when Texans would kind of view New Yorkers as kind of, you know, the thing to be avoided, the kind of devil. I remember when, I mean, I used to use as a shtick in teaching at the University of Texas. really wasn't from New York. I was from Connecticut, but who's counting it? So I used to use that all the time. Um, and it would get a kind of rise out of students. But I, I think at somewhere along the line, California has become kind of the alternative and, yeah. and not New York. And yeah, California being, New York being losing influence, I guess. Is, <laughs> I, I, you know, even though my magazine is The New Yorker and I go to New York a lot and I love New York, uh, I remember growing up how um, I, I, I felt looked down upon yeah. and uh, that the East Coast was anti-Texas and it was you know uh, but and I still think I'm maybe a little too rustic for New York I remember one time I was walking down 6th Avenue and there was a nicely dressed older man standing in the street and he was walking around in little circles and I looked around I saw nobody was paying attention to him and I thought this is so New York you know, there's this man, he needs help. And, and, and nobody's going to help him. They're just going to walk, just but a Texan. You know, so I walk over to him and I say, sir, may I help you? And he looked at me and his eyes were full of confusion. And he said, I'm waiting for a cab. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, well, maybe I really don't belong in this town. <laughs> we got a question down here. This, the woman down here in the front row, or second row. <clears throat> Thank you. 
Lawrence, I know you didn't particularly want to uh, see how things were going to change, but, but Trump is already running for election again, so maybe we ought to be thinking about it. There was a Pew report uh, today, a Pew survey, which made an interesting correlation between mistrust of the media and populism. So it wasn't so much left or right affiliation that made you mistrust the media. It was populism which makes you, I guess, more emotionally identify with a candidate and less rationally judge them. And whilst populism is good at mobilizing in that respect, and Trump's no exception, it has a very poor track record in government. And, you know, those 11 million voters in Texas who didn't vote last time, will they vote this time? And what would make them judge Trump negatively? do you think, given that his record in government is pretty... Um, well, awful. okay, I, I'll, I'll try to take this on. Um, I'm not a good prognosticator, as I've already said. Um, first of all, in order to get those 11 million non-voters out, uh, you'd need somebody that, that motivates them. Now, is there a candidate uh, in the Democratic Party uh, on the horizon. Well, there are a lot of people that are talking about it. And uh, and maybe, s- to be honest, I don't know immediately of a candidate that would uh, galvanize uh, Texas voters. Uh, would Trump do something so stupid that he would alienate uh, enough Texans Sure, you know, it's totally possible. I mean, I don't know. Nobody knows what he's going to do. Uh, I feel like the whole country is like a mouse looking at a cobra. You know, you know, you know how animals get paralyzed by the sight of a cobra? I think, you know, it's like every news cycle, there's a cobra. And uh, it's uh, so, you know, we don't know what he's going to do. Our whole country is in his hands. Uh, he hates his own government. Uh, you mean these are his appointees, and uh, so uh, and so he's sort of hating the government for the people who hate the government, even though he is the government, uh, and so it's, it's confounding. Uh, it, it, it does it will it make him more popular? You know, maybe what would really piss off his voters is if he gets the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, <laughs> It's possible. I mean, you know, oh, yeah, sneer at it as you will, but uh, you're people that voted for Brexit, right? You never <laughs> thought that would happen, right? We, don't li- we live in a, in a world where we don't know what's going to happen, and this populist upsurge that you're talking about uh, is confounding, and, uh, and, and people are voting out of instinct uh, and out of resentment. And... Um, whether four years of Trump will be enough to uh, purge that particular emotion, I, I don't know. I, you know, my, one of my friends said, um, I just hope he fails. And, and I said, you know, but it'll hurt the country. You, I, I, I have to cheer for Trump because... I don't want America to be harmed by him. Uh, it already has been harmed by his election. But I don't want him to fail in some ways. And when we talk about failure, we can mean economic depression. We can mean war. There are a lot of ways to fail. 
And when America fails, it can fail in a really big way. So I did not want him to fail. I, I, I would be galled if he succeeds, but the, the, but the country would do better. That seemed to silence the crowd. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Question right down here. I'll come up there next. Hi, thanks for taking some time to talk to us. Um, I'm from northern United States, Minnesota, and I have one Trump parent and one liberal parent, oh. one rural, one urban. And I wonder if you'd say something about the urban-rural divide. Um, Specifically, I think you hit on something there when you said, uh, uh, maybe I don't belong here. I think there's a certain rural nobility, you know, we're good people, family values. And then there's the, the urban nobility, there's us and them dynamics. And I wonder if maybe Texas has something to offer that I haven't seen or that young people can offer or that demographic or urban-rural divide could be bridged by these young techies and the older, the older, you know, low-tax um, freedom thinkers. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe you could t- talk a little bit more about that future. There are there are interesting alliances. Um, well, for instance, I you know just to advert to the situation in in Britain now with the students and the House of Lords. There's, you know, who knew that would ever, you know, they get together on something, but Brexit seems to have brought them together. Uh, I think in, in the U.S. there are unusual alliances forming because of the fluidity and chaotic situation. Texas is not a rural state. It has a reputation of being a rural state, but it's the most urban state. And, um, you know, three of the largest the top ten largest cities in America are Texas. The eleventh largest is Austin. And three of the largest are in California. That leaves only four cities in all of America that aren't in Texas or California. Um, young people young people go where the jobs are. That's going to happen to you when you graduate. Uh, you're going to, you know, you have ideas about where you want to live, but essentially the magnet that's pulling you is going to be where can I get the best job? And right now in the United States, for the most part, Texas is the place where you're most likely to get a good job. Uh, Houston has, by some metrics, the highest standard of living in, in the whole country. Now, part of that is because housing prices are only 40% of what they are in Los Angeles, which is the city most like Houston in America. Um, So bringing in new blood, you know, what made Texas red in the first place was immigrants, people that, like my parents. You know, my dad was a returning veteran from World War II. He was an Eisenhower Republican like a lot of returning veterans. And uh, he moved to Texas because he, had, he was an itinerant banker. And um, he got a, in Dallas, he got a chance to get a, a, become president of a little bank, a storefront bank that he built up into a major institution. Texas gave him a chance where he didn't have that opportunity, you know, where he came from, Kansas and Oklahoma. Um, now that immigration that made that turned Texas red is having the opposite effect. 
young people with different political traditions are coming into the state. They're not, they don't have the history and the allegiances that Texans who have lived there for a long time have. And even in the suburbs, which have been so red for such a long time, it's beginning to disaggregate because kids who can't afford to live in the city, maybe, you know, they live in the suburbs and they, they have you know, different expectations, different traditions and, and different affiliations. And uh, so that's changing the state and, and maybe changing it back into more of a democratic. I, I'd like to see Texas for once be a bipartisan entity because I think we're a better state when we have both voices represented. And, and I'd, I'd like to see that happen. And it, I think it could happen based upon this new generation coming into the state. I think the last time that happened was when George W. Bush was governor, right? Yes, George Bush was the, the last governor to have a bipartisan. Well, he had, it was both the, the Senate and the House in Texas were governed by Democrats. And Bush, part of the reason he got elected was he was seen as a bipartisan figure. That didn't last very long. No, it didn't last very long. There's uh, the guy in the green back there. Right. I, th- I think it's green. Yeah. T-shirt. Gray. <laughs> Gray, green. What do you see as the future for the long-form narrative investigative style reporting you've spent your career doing? You know, I was in despair about it just a few years ago. And, uh, and uh, you know, journalism has, you know, the money drained out of the newspapers. So many newspapers went out of business, so many magazines. Um, And I thought, you know, what's going to happen? And then things have kind of stabilized. And you use the term long-form journalism. That coinage is about four years old. I never heard it before. And then suddenly, long-form journalism. And there had been a trend that everything had to get shorter and shorter and shorter. And when you get paid by the word, that's a bad trend. (laughs) And I tend to like to write a lot of words. Um, Now I see so many young writers who I, you know, even at the New Yorker, I thought the New Yorker's days are numbered because they're not getting the young writers who uh, can deal with, you know, that journalism at that level. And I'm totally persuaded that the future is in good hands there. So many good young journalists. And I, I'm thrilled, you know, to see them coming along. Uh, they're adding a lot of voices that, that, you know, many voices that hadn't really had a hearing in the past. But, uh, it, you know, it's really exciting to me to see that happening. You know, just to pick up on that, I, I noticed just before I, I met you that... Um, I don't know if he was a long-form journalist, but Tom Wolfe just oh, passed yeah, away. Oh, yeah, I know. I, yeah. You know, I met him one time, and every every reporter of my era was deeply influenced by Tom Wolfe. He made um, nonfiction sexy. Yeah. And he made it more interesting than novels. Uh, you know, I thought when I was young, first of all, I wanted to be a writer, but... I thought I was going to, wanted to be a poet. 
I'm not even interested in poetry, to be honest. I'd rather read a newspaper. But I, you know, I thought of, you know, I'd have a beret, and uh, <laughs> I'd, I'd live in, you know, the, in, in Greenwich Village. I had no idea what the rents were in Greenwich Village, and you know, and then I thought I'd be a novelist. Uh, and then Tom Wolfe came along, and uh, he wrote the candy-colored tangerine flake streamlined baby was his first magazine piece. What? I was, you know, I couldn't believe what I was reading. It was about a car show, but it was—I'd never seen the energy and the imagination uh, put into uh, a, a piece of journalism like that. And I, I went through my new journalism era. You know, I, 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 it, it really wasn't for me exactly. But what Tom Wolfe did, uh, he, as a reporter, noticed things that I don't think reporters had noticed before. Uh, I, I compare him to Dickens in terms of mm-hmm. his, his attention to de- status details and the interior life of his characters. He wasn't making it up. He was interviewing people about what they thought and what they said. And that portion has per- permanently changed journalism, I think, for the better. Um, he used uh, techniques that um, that were common in movies, uh, like scenic construction. Uh, you know, in, you can write a book without writing scenes or creating great characters, mm-hmm. but why? When you have these tools that Tom Wolfe exemplified, uh, creating wonderful scenes and, you know, embodying so much life in his characters that, you know, it, it made you wonder why you would ever read another novel because it was real mm-hmm. and it was also thrilling. I, the Right Stuff was his book about the astronauts and um, I had just written about the astronauts myself and I felt a little chagrined, but he <laughs> signed my book and um, he... he he was a Rococo gentleman, and he's in this beautiful hand. He said to Lawrence Wright, "Astronaut Chronicler Supreme." <laughs> uh, wow, uh, I was I was so touched by that. But it's a great loss. I, uh, I, I, you know, I wasn't as great a fan of his fiction, um, just because I was so radicalized by his nonfiction. Yeah, I think maybe on that. Well, actually, that's a great way to just kind of. Wrap it up. It's not about Trump. It's not about Texas. But it is about something very, very iconic. You know, yeah. it was, was terrific. I want to thank you so much for joining us, coming to talk about your new book. I wish you the best of luck with it. It's thank wonderful you. to have you here. Thank you. Thank you so much.